Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ plus support. For the month of March, St. Evans is supporting the Chicago Period Project, an organization that empowers homeless and in-need people to experience their periods with dignity. This feminist grassroots organization distributes pads, tampons, underwear, and other critical menstruation supplies to local shelters, schools, and crisis support networks. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wheresaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where St. Evans. Shop vintage, do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that feels like, I don't know, life is getting a little bit more like Black Mirror every day. Is Black Mirror a documentary? Am I confused? Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 64. I'm so excited to say that today's special guest is Close Horse All-Star, a listener favorite, and someone who always enjoys going down some weird conversational paths with me. It's MP of Ungarbage Mag. She was our final guest for 2020 for episode 42. And I still think a lot about our conversation. And I know a lot of you do too, because I hear from you periodically about it. I felt like we just couldn't do consumption month without MP. So today she and I are going to be talking about virtual reality. Now, not the kind that involves wearing those big goggles and looking really silly to outside observers. And by the way, those things always make me super dizzy and headachey. So I don't know like how I'm going to survive in the future. But no, we're going to talk about virtual realities that we all live in and experience right now. And they all connect to consumerism and consumption. Sounds pretty intense, right? <laughs> We'll be talking about NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens. Don't worry if you've never heard about them. I'm going to tell you all about it. <laughs> We're going to talk about virtual clothing that is merely for social media photos. We'll talk about Second Life, which is a game. It's not really a game. It's kind of like an alternative world. Uh, and we'll be talking about Snapchat dysmorphia. Yeah, that's a real thing. And yeah, like actually so much more. So just buckle in because this is quite an episode and I'm really excited about it. This is part one of our conversation and the second half will be heading your way on Sunday. I also have two phone calls today, one from Jessica of Vino Vintage and another from Susan, who was a guest in last week's episode. But first, let's shout out our newest supporters on Patreon. First is Tatum Lindquist of Florida. Tatum sent in the great advice about reusing packaging and not getting negative feedback when selling on Poshmark. That was in the last episode. 
Tatum has two of the most beautiful children I have ever seen, and she takes the most stunning photos of them. Good job, Tatum, on all of it. Uh, thank you so much for your support. Next is Haley Wood, which is like one of the best names I've ever seen or said out loud. And Haley lives in Massachusetts. She sent me the nicest message about how valuable my work is. It really made my day. I know she might not hear this episode for a while because she's working her way through the whole series. And well, at this point, we have a lot of episodes. <laughs> but thank you so much, Haley, both for your kind message and for all of your support. If you're interested in supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you, as always, to everyone who supports Close Horse, whether it's with money or time or just listening or reposting our content or writing a review and making my day. Thank you to all of you. <laughs> okay. Well, we should take some phone calls. Now, before we plug in the Hello Kitty phone, I want to talk about the sound quality of hotline messages. I received some feedback that these can be difficult to hear. Sound, when you're working on a podcast, I have to tell you, there are a lot of things you can do about it, but so much of it is out of your control when everything is digital and recorded long distance. Like I sound amazing right now because I'm literally recording directly into my audio software, which is, you know, in my computer with a super fancy microphone setup. And I wouldn't have any of this going on if it weren't for Dustin, who shares this really very professional, high quality microphone with me and then helped me find the right gear to sort of process it all through my computer. So I come from a really privileged position when it comes to the sound quality on this podcast. But phones do sound different, right? Like you can hear that the phone calls sound different. And I did some Googling. I think a long time ago, maybe it was Aaron, maybe it was someone else, said that they'd heard that phones had lower quality, but they couldn't remember why. And I actually literally Googled, why is the sound quality on cell phone calls just kind of meh? <laughs> okay, I didn't say the meh part, but you know, about that's approximately what I Googled. And I stumbled upon a Scientific American article that really spelled it out for me. For one, manufacturers don't consider talking on the phone to be the primary use of smartphones. Instead, it's about optimizing speed, photo quality, and video, which makes sense because how often do you talk on your phone? Probably not very often. How often do you take photos or FaceTime and all of that stuff? Probably a lot more. The article also said that, quote, device makers often shrink, flatten, and cover speakers in plastic to improve their phone's overall functionality. Even on a high-end smartphone that uses several microphones and noise cancellation algorithms, a caller is not guaranteed clear sound, especially in noisy environments, which none of this surprises me at all, right? So we aren't imagining this lower sound quality. When you call the Close Horse Hotline, you're actually calling a Google Voice number that allows me to download an MP3 of your phone call and then edit the same way I do all of my other conversations. Of course, this file is compressed and it's an MP3 file, not the higher quality WAV files that I create like when I'm recording right now at this moment, my own voice. But this Google voice number has allowed me to reach more people 
include more voices in our conversations and, you know, give our community a platform for sharing their thoughts and ideas. I also use the hotline to record shorter conversations with members of our community too. For longer conversations, I send the guest a microphone and we record using a web-based service that, to be honest, (laughs) is also a little glitchy because, you know, internet, right? So even though I actually pay for that service, sometimes that sound quality needs a lot of zhuzhing too at the end of the process. After I download your phone messages or a conversation from Google Voice, I cut out any sections with sound quality issues, which does happen, and I edit out any pauses or personal info. Obviously, if it's a full-on conversation, I'm doing a lot more editing than just that. But when I'm done editing the entire episode, piecing it all together, all of that stuff, I pass the file, which is really just a series of different tracks that I've built of all the different things that have happened on the episode. I pass that off to Dustin, who is my husband, and is also, in fact, luckily enough for me, a highly experienced audio engineer. He's recorded and produced lots of albums. He's toured with bands just to mix their super complex, like psychedelic live shows. He has a broad array of technical knowledge that most podcasts, even the fancy ones on like Earwolf or Stitcher, don't have access to. So I am super lucky. He uses a wide variety of software and plugins to maximize the sound of the show. And I have to tell you, he does an amazing job. And he also, he's tough on me. If I record something on my own, and it's that's just me, not like a guest, and he doesn't think the quality is up to snuff, he will ask me to go record it again, because you know, his name is on this podcast too. And he doesn't want it to sound bad, which I get. And all of this hard work that he does on the sound of the podcast includes maximizing the quality of the hotline calls. I listen to every episode at least once after the final audio mix just to check for any issues. And I'm going to be honest, sometimes it goes through another edit and another mix and maybe a few more. But overall, I've never noticed an issue with the phone call sounds. I usually just listen to it on my phone without headphones or an external speaker because then I'm kind of getting the worst case scenario sound quality. Do the phone calls sound like phone calls? Yes, of course. But they sound much better than the phone calls I hear on some of my favorite podcasts. I intend to continue with the Closed Horse Hotline indefinitely because it has opened up the show to so many different ideas and voices. It It brings me so much joy every time I have a new message. It is accessible to anyone who has a phone. So it's very easy. It's very inclusive. You can call me with a flip phone, a landline, or the fanciest iPhone out there. It's also easier. It doesn't require special technology or technical knowledge. And I have to say, using it to record shorter conversations actually saves me a lot of money Because rather than the $10 to $20 to ship a microphone to the guest, I just have them call the hotline and I record that way. And it also reduces the carbon footprint of the show because I'm not shipping gear all over the place. And that's another thing that I like to be mindful of. It feels like a no-brainer to use the hotline as much as possible, even if the sound quality isn't ideal. Dustin and I had a lengthy discussion about the feedback recording the sound, We're going to continue to explore new ways to improve it. But once again, this is something he and I have been putting a lot of regular work into. I would say 
If you want to call in and now you're nervous about the sound, well, make sure it's quiet in the place where you're calling me. Uh, Speak into your phone clearly and loudly. You can also just record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me too. This tends to be better sound quality, but like I said, I enjoy the sound of the phone call. I like hearing someone talk on the phone and I think it is in nice contrast with the other kinds of sound that exist in every episode. So the hotline is staying. We will continue to make it as good as possible, but I also want you to understand why it sounds different and why it's really challenging. I hope that I have not bored you to death. Uh, Are you awake? Now wake up if you fell asleep because we're actually gonna listen to some messages. A few episodes ago, Amy of the Velvet Underground dropped by to talk about the importance of small business owners sharing both their victories and their struggles. And Jessica of Vino Vintage heard this and called in to share her feelings on it. Hey, Amanda, it's Jessica from Vino Vintage. Um, I just wanted to give you a call because I was just listening to the episode about, uh, I think it was the most recent hotline episode and how hard it is to be a small business owner. And I just wanted to share that um, so I've been doing flea markets for pretty steadily since summer 2020 when things started to, like, open up again out here in, like, Southern California where I live. And I've had some really, really great flea markets, and I've also had some really, like, not so great where I actually lose money. And, you know, although those times um, are unfortunate, I still, you know, share, like, I'll still post, you know, things that I'm selling. Like I really try and take advantage of those slower market days. So I'll try and like post stuff um, that I have like at the market to sell on like my Depop or do like a story sale to really just feel like I'm still staying busy, even though like I may not be making that much money at the market. So that's like a little tip that I like to do um, for anyone else who might be having like a slow market. Another thing that I do um, is really thank any like family and friends that come and visit me, even if they don't buy anything, just having them like stop by and like check out the market and just like give me that support that like they support me just following my dream. I really um, love to shout them out on like my personal Instagram and my shop's Instagram and really just thank them for taking the time to come visit me. It's just so important to me. And specifically, I did a sell a couple weeks ago where I actually lost money because I spent more money on inventory and, um, you know, the fee for the selling space, like I ended up losing money, um, which, like I said, happens from time to time. Um, but I had one of my friends um, come visit me and she bought a couple things, spent like 50 bucks. And even though I still didn't make like a profit, her coming and like spending money and just supporting me in that way really was really special to me. And if she didn't come and visit me, I would have been $50, you know, even less like in the hole. Um, and yeah, I just want to share that I agree with what you and um, your fellow um, person that you have on the podcast was saying, like, tell your friends and family, like, to come visit you and also share when you're, you're not doing that great. It's okay. Um, I feel like especially being a small business, sharing your struggles and sharing your tips and stuff really help, you know, other people who are trying to start a business. It's not all, you know, rainbows and butterflies all the time it oftentimes is really, really hard. So I just wanted to share my two cents about, you know, not always making big bucks at flea markets. You know, sometimes you have your great weekends and other times they're just slow. It's, you know, that's how it goes. 
Thank you so much for calling, Jessica. It was so nice to hear your voice. And I think Jessica has some really great advice about sort of salvaging a bad market. You know, I've always wondered about that. And I have a lot of friends who sell at various markets and events. And, you know, you don't want to be that guy by asking them personal information. But I have always wondered how it goes, right? Like, what do sellers do when the flea market is rained out or too hot or just no one feels like shopping? Jess, I also promise you that I'm going to come to visit you at a flea market someday, hopefully in the not so distant future. And for everyone else, do you have some stories about the ups and downs of your own small business or maybe some good small biz advice for the rest of the community? Share it with us by calling or emailing. Remember, small business is the future. It's how we change the status quo of shitty, unethical, exploitive business practices. So let's help one another grow. Okay, next is a phone call from the one and only Susan Massey. Not only did she and I have a conversation in the last episode, but she also wrote an incredible It Happened to Me column for Clotheshorse.world about blowing the whistle on some very unsafe and unsanitary, and I would add, incredibly unsavory conditions at a job. So let's take a listen to what she has to say. Hi there, Amanda. It's Susan Massey. I just wanted to let you know what a wonderful, positive experience on a whole I've had with um, with Clothes Horse, both with the blog and with you interviewing me. Um, the interview went out today and the blog article that I wrote went out on, I think it was, it was Wednesday, St. Patrick's Day. And I just wanted to um, also impress upon your listeners, if you decide to play this, that if if you have something that you want to talk about, something that you want to write, do it. Because everyone I worked with at, at Clothes Horse was so great and so skilled at editing and interviewing and, and everything else. And I was having a lot of doubts about writing the article, especially, and Meg was so wonderful and gave me a very um, gentle nudge, the encouragement I needed. Carrie is an excellent editor. Um, the illustration by Rabbit Person is beautiful. Um, and I'm proud of my work, and I'm proud to have worked with you all on this. Um, so if, you, if you're listening and you have something to say, you have something you want to talk about, something you want to write about, go ahead. Um, let that let the clothes horse crew know because they're great and they're gonna they're gonna get it out of you and they're gonna work with it and shape it and it's gonna be something wonderful that we all wanna read, we all wanna know about. So thank you again. I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye bye. You know, thank you so much for calling Susan. And you know what? I'm so glad that you had an amazing experience. That's actually a major focus for the team, ensuring that every contributor gets the support, encouragement, and appreciation that they deserve. It means that we had to create a really solid system that prevents anything from falling through the cracks or not getting the proper amount of attention. You know, running a blog is real work, but it's worthwhile to us because we are so passionate about the mission of Close Horse. Right now, we release five posts per week. Each post requires hours of outreach from Meg, fine-tuning by Carrie, copy editing by Katie, and design by Haley. And I create and design the social media posts. There are emails, Instagram comments, tons of DMs that require attention. And most importantly, 
we want to do everything that we can to ensure every contributor has a positive experience. But real talk, we can't grow, we can't reach more people and generate more content with our current core team. We have very quickly realized that our ambitions for the site and the stream of submissions from the community have outstripped what we're able to sustain right now. We have tons of content ideas that we want to generate and so many different ways that we want to engage with the community, both the community as it exists now and people we would like to bring into the community. And we want to do it with a high level of editorial polish and visual panache, which is what you expect from us, right? And I have to say, I look at the blog so far and I'm like, oh my God, it looks so good. And all the content is, it's some of the best stuff I've seen out there. And it certainly blows any recent style blog out of the water, right? But to keep this going and to grow and continue to uphold those high standards, you know, there just aren't enough hours in the day. We knew that we would eventually need to bring more people on board, but we didn't want to do it until we had the right processes in place. Once again, the processes are what ensure that every contributor has an amazing experience. But we're, we're there now, and we're ready to expand the team. So we're launching three new volunteer residency positions. These are distinct roles that fall under the main departments of the blog. So content production, editorial, and design. Now, I cannot emphasize enough at this point that we do not make any money off of closedhorse.world. In fact, I'm currently covering the costs of our web hosting, email service, form systems, and all the elements of our technological infrastructure. The long-term plan is to generate income to cover our costs, pay ourselves, and you know, potentially compensate our contributors as well in one way or another. In the coming weeks, I'm actually going to be officially filing paperwork for a Close Horse World LLC, which will put us in a better position to consider revenue streams like advertising and upcycled low-consumption swag that you could buy. Nonetheless, I still consider being paid for my work a very distant dream, unfortunately. And I'm telling you all of this because, for one, honesty is a big deal around here. And two, I want you to understand why these three roles we are announcing are unpaid because no one currently gets paid at CloseHorse.World. So you're probably wondering, what do you mean by a residency? It's kind of like an internship. You agreed to reside on our team for a minimum of three months, attend our weekly meetings, and carry out specific responsibilities based on your role. Three months, we feel like, is just the right amount of time. You'll receive training. You'll be embedded in our process. We'd love to minimize turnover, but we also realize that people can't volunteer their time indefinitely. If you get to the end of your three months and it's going well and you think you can commit to three more months, then let's talk about it. But three months is a sweet spot. It's a meaningful amount of time for you to get the full close horse experience and for us to benefit from your contributions. We're asking our residents to devote between eight to 12 hours per week on the blog, which we do realize is a big commitment for volunteer work. And we've already talked like, okay, well, depending on the applications we get and the kind of people who apply and what their experience is, we may be able to bring on extra people and cut everyone's hours down a little bit. It's it just all depends who applies at this point. And this is a very fluid process to a certain extent. 
you're probably wondering though, okay, so you're not going to pay me. What does the residency offer? Like, why should I apply? Well, you're going to meet lots of new people from our community, which is my favorite part of the whole thing. You'll get to work on something you're really passionate about. You'll learn some new stuff. And of course, you can add it to your portfolio and resume. And I love to write a recommendation letter or a reference, so I'll help you with that too. As I mentioned, there are three positions. I'm going to give you a a couple bullet points about each one of these, but there'll be a lot more information coming to the blog on Sunday. So first is the community outreach resident, and this position works closely with Meg, our content producer. Meg has described herself as the cheerleader for all the contributors, and so That is also what the community outreach resident will be. This role is for someone who is outgoing, a true people person. You're someone who loves to initiate, instigate, and just get a lot of cool shit happening. You'll often be the first point of contact when someone reaches out to us about contributing to the blog. You know, they might have a rough idea and need help talking it through or shaping it. You're the one who listens enthusiastically and steers them towards the next step. This role will involve some editing, some copywriting, a little bit of everything. You'll probably be working on all kinds of weird stuff with me. So being flexible is really important as well. And you're going to be like the close horse ambassador, someone who reaches outside of our community to to designers and makers that we admire and want to feature on the blog. So you're also going to be writing a lot of really compelling emails that will convince someone that they should work with us. Okay. Maybe you said, you know, that sounds way more extroverted than I am. Well, might I interest you in the role of editorial resident? This position works closely with Carrie, our executive editor. This role is for someone who has editorial acumen, discernment, curiosity, great ideas, writing chops, and a deep desire to help others express themselves and tell a good story. Often we'll receive a rough draft from a contributor that has a lot of potential, but just needs some clarification or refinement. And you are capable of spotting that potential and asking the right questions to help draw the writer out. This process requires persistence, kindness, and respect for our contributors' voices. You'll also be editing and contributing some writing to posts that we generate in-house in collaboration with the content producer and the community outreach resident. This position is really important because it plays a big part in keeping our editorial process on track. This means setting up submissions in our very amazing publishing system created by Carrie, writing schedules, and making sure that projects are moving along on deadline. If you're someone who thrives on making the trains run on time and driving to a tangible result, this position is for you. Our last role is graphic design residence. This position works closely with Haley, our design systems lead. This role is for someone who either has quite a bit of design experience or someone who's new to the field because Haley is able to tailor the residency to your experience level. So this can be an amazing learning opportunity. If you're an experienced graphic designer, you'll be able to focus on the blog as an opportunity to expand your portfolio and be more experimental because we love that around here. Or maybe you're an entry-level designer, but a true workhorse who wants to learn the nuts and bolts of digital design. Either way, you'll be laying out one to three posts per week, providing art direction to an illustrator to create editorial visuals for our posts, and you might be creating art for posts 
on your own. This position does require that you have access to photo editing and digital illustration software and basic know-how with these tools. You must be deadline-oriented because I cannot emphasize this enough. Our posts can't go live on time without you. You are a really important part of the process. Okay, now that I've explained the three jobs to you, do you want to apply? Here's how. Our job descriptions and application form will go live on the blog this Sunday, March 28th. The application, which is a very simple form to fill out, no resume is necessary. In fact, don't send us your resume because resumes are so boring. The application will be due on Monday, April 12th. So that gives you two weeks to fill out the form. We'll start interviewing candidates the week of April 12th. That's the deadline. And we'll make a final decision for our first round of residents by Monday, April 26th. And the residency will begin on Monday, May 3rd. It will run until August. We'll keep all of the applications on file, even if we don't choose you for this round, and potentially schedule our next round of residents through this application process. And like I said, we are going to look at all the applications and maybe bring on a couple of additional people, just depending on what the skill sets are that people bring to the table. So please, please apply. I would also just like to repeat, check out closehorse.world this Sunday for more info and the application. I would also suggest following at closehorse.world on Instagram so you can have your memory jogged by all of our posts about it. All right, well, I need to take a break from talking. So let's just dive right into my conversation with MP because I have a lot to tell you afterwards. Today we have an all-star, one of everybody's top guests. It is MP, and she is back to talk all things consumption with me today. So MP, why don't you remind everyone who you are? Hi, my name's MP. Um, I'm a French Canadian living in Toronto and Canada. I'm the founder of Ungarbage Magazine. And um, yeah, I'm just happy to be here again. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we're going to be talking about some really weird stuff today. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the best. The weirder, the better. Um, you know, MP and I were G chatting a few weeks ago for a column that will be coming to closehorse.world very soon. And we just started going down some strange rabbit holes as we tend to do. And we started talking about virtual reality. Why don't you get it started here, MP? You were telling me about how a lot of brands, not a lot, but some of the big brands are really looking to like virtual shopping as their future? Yeah, so we're talking about virtual fashion and how virtual fashion is the, the one of the ways the industry will evolve. Um, and right now you can see it in like obscure p- places on Instagram uh, where people can pay to buy outfits. And the way it works is you just, let's say you want to have like a, sh- a shirt or a skirt or a dress or whatever, you can go on the site and you select the item that you want and you pay and then you send a picture of yourself and then the company will do like a mapping of your body on the picture and then they'll put the outfit and they send it to you. So essentially, this is to curb the problem of people buying clothing to take pictures of themselves with new outfits on Instagram and then returning them, which is like a huge problem. 
especially in the fast fashion market. So yeah, so their idea is to then just make virtual clothing. That way they can still make money and people can still uh, always have their outfit of the day without none of the clothing actually being produced. I mean, and on one hand, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's nice. At least it's like less environmentally devastating. But, you know, another thing that we haven't really ever talked about on the podcast, because I have very complex feelings about it, is like the idea of clothing rental, because a lot of services have swooped in to say, hey, listen, we get it. You need to wear a new outfit every day for Instagram. So why don't you just borrow them from us for this like monthly subscription fee? But what that really does is it just continues to reinforce that idea that you need to have a new outfit every day on Instagram, which I I have a problem with that, you know? Like you said, there's like good in it. And it's also really strange in the same way that you can rent fashion. At least their fashion you rent, you can actually wear it in real life. You know, if you have an mm-hmm. event or a party or something that's important to you and you do want to have a dress and you might never wear that dress again, you might as well rent it, then buy Agreed. it and it sits in your closet. But the thing with virtual clothing is you don't get to wear it in real life at all. It's only online. So then it becomes like you have your virtual life in wardrobe and you have your real life wardrobe. <laughs> And so, yeah, I I just find it so interesting on like who came up with this idea and also the repercussion, the psychological repercussion. That's where the conversation starts to get weird. Like if everybody is listening thought it was already really weird that we were talking about fake clothes, this is where we're going to take a really weird turn. (laughs) Which is basically, I mean, you said this when we were like (laughs) pre-gaming for this. You said our lives are already really unnatural and we're already kind of living like a virtual reality already, you know, because we don't live in the same way that all the other animals on the planet live. Like we are so focused on all of these constructs that are, they're not real, you know, like social media being a big part of that. But like well before social media, we were still living these very strange lives where we were obsessed with accumulating things, you know, how we looked, altering our appearances, um, all these ideas of like goals and bucket lists and whatnot. You know, my cat is just like, all I want is food and to be warm and dry, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like in a way we're already disconnected from the cycle of life and from nature and and from the idea that everything is everything is everything and everything is being used to create something new. Mm-hmm. Like we already created an entire world that's, detach from that and the fact that we're thinking every day like what should my career be and what other people are going to think about what I do with my life and like all these things that actually don't matter like there's also the same way your cat just wants to eat and 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 poop and stuff uh dogs are not like um I wonder if this other dog thinks I look bad today (laughs) yeah exactly I was thinking about that you know my one cat George she is always looking at herself in the mirror and (laughs) it's like such a strange human behavior and of course we can only speculate on what she's thinking but she is very neurotic and I sometimes I'm like has George been around humans so long that she is fretting about her appearance because (laughs) it's like so fascinating and whenever I can't find her I go in the spare room and there she is looking in the mirror 
It's so strange. But the pandemic has shifted us into even more of a fake world over the past year. I mean, but we were already there. So I want to say that this is none of this is like a new development. I was reading an article today about um, Zoom backgrounds because you and I and you and I had kind of it was like coincidental. I hadn't even searched for it, but you and I had talked about it, which are these like fake backgrounds that you put on your Zoom calls to, you know, it, it could be just to cover up the fact that you don't clean your house. It could also be because you're ashamed <laughs> of your house. You know, I was noticing at my last job before I got laid off, after all of our meetings shifted to Zoom, for a couple of days, you would kind of just see everyone's regular living spaces. And then pretty rapidly, it switched to people sitting in front of like really well curated backdrops that they had created in their homes of like perfectly arranged books and plants or other people shifting to these fake backgrounds. And I felt like it was a really, there was insecurity around your living environment, which usually you don't have to think about at work. You just have to think about how you, you physically look at work, you know, and of course your work performance, you know, whatever your work persona might be, but no one at your job is normally seeing where you live. And so it adds this additional layer of insecurity (laughs) Uh, yeah, totally. And I felt like people were being very competitive and calling out each other's spaces and whatnot. And it was sort of like, just like everything else, right? It was uh, definitely uh, leading to some rampant consumerism because people were buying plants and books and furniture and bric-a-brac to put in their Zoom background. <laughs> It's like even like yeah and even like the competition of like you know oh wow your background looks so great and then other people are like oh no but my no one said that my living room looks great or like what am I gonna do to to fix up until like for the next call and even I started I do some tech hosting for some uh leadership development programs and um there was a, a company that asked me like, okay, we want to make sure the tech hosts have, like everyone actually have a good background behind them. And I literally just sit on the ground behind, like in front of a bunch of records because the entire condo is like windows. So we don't have a lot of space, mm-hmm. but it's really interesting that it's like, it's a requirement. Make sure that you have a good background. It's like, I'm just trying to work here. I know. And, you know, some people might not even be into design. They just... They don't have to be to be able to do their job, you know? Exactly, exactly. And the article I was reading this morning was basically like, why can't we normalize people just opting not to use their camera that day for the Zoom meeting? Like, why is that stigmatized? Because I've definitely been in some Zoom meetings where I have been chastised to put on my camera and I'm like, I'm just like not feeling it today, you know? I don't want to be on video today. I, I, I think that there's nothing wrong or unnatural about that, you know? Uh, but you know, that's one way in which like we've been forced to worry about things that don't matter really. And also find technology to adapt, to adapt to that. So like creating these fake backgrounds for zoom. I mean, that was like a way that technology was like, here's a thing you can buy or download that will solve your problem. And I would guess by the time this comes out, a lot of people have seen this documentary, but I was telling MP about a documentary I watched a few weeks ago called fake famous, which was basically about creating influencers. They just picked three people out of a large audition and were like, we're going to make you influencers. So there were a lot of things happening that you know, we already expect, right? There were tons of selfies. The funniest part actually was at the audition, practically everyone was just standing there 
with their selfies, like in like their phone in selfie mode with the ring light clipped on. And it was really funny. <laughs> but, you know, and of course, we know people are using filters. We, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, too. We know that I, – I would assume most people know this now – that the big influencers, the brands, they buy followers, which in themselves are very interesting because they are artificial people. And basically there are – these hackers have created these algorithms that create these bots, which are fake people that are an amalgamation of different names and images of people that they found across the internet. So there is a chance – there are fake people out there following an influencer who share your profile photo, which is really creepy <laughs> to think about. Like, what if you, what if your alternate you is following someone you hate right now? You know? Yeah, yeah that's a lot. Uh, there's an uh, there's an account on Instagram that I follow, and um, the woman's always posting. Um, here's what reality looks like. Here's what my body looks like in real life. Here's who, how I can make it look on Instagram for pictures. And she was just sharing a few weeks back how companies are actually using her pictures and they are putting before this is a juice diet and after, and then she's like, no, that's me the same day. <laughs> I took those pictures like on purpose to show uh. that both are me and people are stealing them. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your photos are out there. You know, the first experiences, I mean, not like my personal experiences, but the first experiences that I observed of someone's photos being used by a stranger is on Catfish, which is, I was telling MP about this yesterday. It is a quasi-reality show. I'm sure some of it is highly scripted, but basically people are in these long-term relationships with someone they've never met in real life that they've probably never even FaceTimed with or Zoomed with. And so their only knowledge of this person is the photos that the person sends them, maybe the photos that are on their social media accounts, and also, you know, just their conversations. And these relationships are very deep, deeply emotional. They are real relationships. The problem is that almost every single time, none of those photos are real. I mean, they're real. They're of a different person. And these have just been harvested from the internet. And ostensibly, like the two stars will, you know, try to track down the real truth about this person. Are they really who they say they are or not? And the first thing they always do is do a reverse Google image search of all of that person's social media photos. And it's always someone else. I... They often reach out to the people whose photos those really are, and they're upset. You know, I, I would be too. I, I can't explain it, but like, can't we just own our appearance? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's too late for that. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> Learning about these bots that like fake fault these fake followers, how they're just using all of our our Im images anyway. Like the odds of there being a fake you out there are really really high, and I had first kind of become aware of the real depth of this a few months ago. Um, there was someone who was being suspected on Google Maps reviews, like of having fake reviews, and people kept calling them up because they were weird. Like the people, like if you clicked into the profile of the person who had written the reviews, it didn't make any sense because they were all over the place and they would use a lot of the same phrases again. And then, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. 
the photos of these reviewers started to be actual real-life celebrities who could be easily tracked down. Like one of them was Hillary Clinton. It was a photo of Hillary Clinton, but with a different name, writing review about how happy she was with her fake Chanel bag. Like it was <laughs> so fascinating. And, you know, they start – and then someone like on Instagram was doing a reverse image search of all of these people – and they were all – like the interesting thing is that most of them were actually surprisingly high-profile people. Like another person was like a state representative. Another person was like a well-known physician. Like this is just happening all the time. It's so wild. Like you wonder with the people you even interact with on a day-to-day -day basis on social media, which of them are, are real people? You know, mm -hmm. as AI gets more sophisticated, could you be having a DM conversation with AI, you know? I think that happens sometimes, like uh, chatting with <clears throat> customer service on uh, oh, yeah. online. And it's like, okay, I need this. I have some questions. And then I didn't understand this. Oh, <laughs> then it's not, oh, shit, I'm talking to a butt. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's just like, uh, person, please. <laughs> Agent, please. Totally. Get totally. out of here. <laughs> Here in Pennsylvania, for the unemployment insurance system, they installed this fake customer service agent named Paula, uh, who has a profile photo that is a human and everything else. And it's pretty obvious early on that Paula is not a real person <laughs> because she doesn't seem to understand anything. And there's a really prescriptive series of steps you have to go through with her before she'll let you speak to an agent. But uh, I would see people on the like Facebook unemployment you know, help groups being like, dude, I had to deal with this terrible customer service agent today. Her name is Paula. She wasn't answering any of my questions. It was like she wasn't even listening to me. <laughs> it would be like, who's going to break it to this person that Paula is not real? And then like this, this getting over this Paula hurdle has become such a pain point for everyone, including myself. Someone actually wrote a script that you can install in your browser that will confuse Paula into letting you talk to a customer service agent, <laughs> which wow. I have used. Because I would be there for like an hour like, come on, Paula, please. Yeah, can, please can let you me bypass? To... Yeah, please, Paula, you already asked me that. I said I need to speak to an agent. Can we please just move on? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that. I am assuming over time, even Paula will become more sophisticated and it will be more challenging to figure out if you're talking to a person or not. Um, anyway, another thing that was in this documentary, uh, Fake Famous, is, you know, they had to take a lot of photos to create this, like, aspirational lifestyle for these budding influencers. And they really, they really touched on all of the sort of, like, tropes that we've come to expect on social media, like travel, right? You have to have the ubiquitous... I'm on a plane having a drink, going somewhere fabulous photo, and there's the the airplane window next to me lighting me. They did that with a toilet seat. <laughs> and the toilet seat was like the window, and then they had like a cloud backdrop behind it. And I will tell you, you look at the photos, I would dare you to, to tell the difference between a toilet seat and an airplane. <laughs> oh, my God. And then I was telling you how I knew that in L.A. you could rent – the set of a private jet for photo shoots and influencers have been using them all the time. Um, it's pretty affordable too. It's like $65 an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can uh, go just do a photo shoot in a fake private jet for wow. as many hours as you want and generate all kinds of 
content and your followers will never know that you didn't fly anywhere. And I guess this has been going on for a while, but it really blew up during the pandemic as, you know, influencers are running out of content. Now, I mean, I, I get annoyed by this because I just don't think anybody should be normalizing traveling right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So whether it's fake travel or not, it still looks like real travel to people and that makes them think it's okay to travel during a pandemic. So I'm not okay with that. But just more and more, I mean, I I don't know what you can believe that you see on social media. What is real? Yeah. And even on a smaller scale, like influencers who buy things with their own money and then post on Instagram saying, I received this gift or like gifted item and really they just purchased it to like convince like so brands can look at it and be like, oh, this brand gave her something. So I should too. Like Mm -hmm. they're just building that credibility with this fake idea of already receiving things. I always thought that's. Yeah. Yeah. Or. Another thing that influencers will do is like the oldest trick is go to the store and take lots of photos of clothes in the fitting room, Photoshop them to look like you're actually out in the world, and then you don't have to spend a dime. Yeah, but, or just buy them and return them. And then yeah. now we're, we've gone back full circle <laughs> with yeah. the virtual fashion and how that you know solves that problem. It does. It does. And so if you're like listening to this and you're thinking like, why would someone spend money on something that they don't own physically? I have a few examples that I wanted to talk about. And the first one is this game. I was telling MP, I hesitate to call it a game because it's more like a virtual world called Second Life. And a few years ago, I remember like reading that Second Life was going away and people were devastated, but apparently that ended up not happening. And this online world has existed since 2003 and people live a second life via avatars and you can make your avatar whatever you want it to be you know it can be how you wish you were instead of who you are and you can buy plastic surgery for your avatar and different bodies and magical powers and clothes there's an actual pretty pretty significant virtual economy that is rooted in actual money that the game that actually has been like mega thriving through the pandemic because more and more people, I was reading people who were like, I'd quit the game for a while because, you know, I had real life to live, but now I don't. So I'm back in. And the article that I read last night specifically is about this idea of, I don't know if you've heard of these MP non fungible tokens. No. Which are, basically virtual things that you buy online with real money. But the value for them is a lot different than like if I buy a dress in real life, the value is that I can wear it. It's like physical in my hand. If I buy a virtual dress, the value of it sort of shifts, right? Because it's like not a real thing, but depending on how I utilize it in the virtual world, it becomes real to me, like the clothing you were talking about. And apparently even Grimes did some non-fungible tokens that were paintings of like babies in space. They sold for millions of dollars. Once again, this is just like, you know, a series of code that someone now owns. You know, it's like not a real painting that they can hang in their house, but I guess they could show people on their phone. It's really, it's a really 
interesting premise. But the point is, is like the whole the whole business landscape is buzzing about these non-fungible tokens now because it's like, hey, here's an even cheaper, easier way to get people to buy things because you don't even have to physically yeah. make it, yeah. you know? So so a lot of different companies and brands are swooping in to be like, I want to start making things that aren't real but feel real. And, you know, a lot of analysts are really crediting Second Life for sort of proving that this concept could work. So last year alone, uh, they saw a 30 to 40% increase in overall in-game spending on Second Life. Um, and it's interesting. So your your avatar can both buy these things called Linden dollars. That's the currency that you use in the Second Life world. But you can also earn Linden dollars through selling goods and services. I actually read about a couple who runs a store within Second Life that is all these different tchotchkes that the other users can buy for their homes, their yeah. virtual homes in Second Life. And they literally – this is how this couple makes their living in real life. So they create things for sale in the game, which people buy with the Linden dollars, and then they can use those Linden dollars, you know, sort of like a currency exchange to exchange them for actual, you know – real dollars it's kind of ironic to leave your real life to go to a virtual life to make money to like go and work like i'm gonna go to another life so i can work (laughs) and then come back to my real life and then and then what (laughs) i know i mean i honestly it sounds really really hard to me psychologically because you know they're in the game this online world where they're you know making a living they're also like doing customer service there and having interactions with all of their customers and like their whole day of work is literally them like sitting at a computer living in a world that isn't real and i mean this is this is picking up more and more momentum you know like you might think that oh these people these are like outliers but last year players earned by selling goods and services in the game million. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. People buy clothing, tchotchkes. You can buy land, other services. Like people will put on shows, like virtual concerts that you can attend in Second Life. Um, There are definitely sexual services going on, Um, therapy. I I guess I wonder if Second Life – his now kind of like real life where you work and earn money and make money and interact with people. What's the advantage of doing second life? Like maybe there's less um, limitations on who they could be. Maybe there's less, I don't know if there's like trends in second life. Like, is there fashion trends? Is there beauty oh. standards in second life? Oh, you know? I'm sure. I'm sure. I'd actually, a couple years ago, I had been reading a lot about the beauty standards in there because guess what? They're exactly the beauty standards that exist in, in quote, real life too, right? So a lot of people who feel so insecure about their bodies in real life, which is most of us, could go into the game and have that body that they felt was perfect. And there are also people in the game who will sell you services to make your avatar even more perfect, just like in real life. If you're working at home right now and your only contact with your coworkers is via Slack and Zoom and email, what's the difference, I guess? And at least in 
second life, you aren't worrying if the backdrop in your Zoom meetings is appealing enough because you could create your own idealized space within the game. Right. So I guess you start to see how more how it's like more desirable. Yeah. And the, I guess the thing that I'm thinking of, and it's the same idea for virtual clothing is like at the end of the day, when you close your computer, you still have to be who you are. Like you have to you have to come back to who you really are, not your avatar. And you still have to go to the grocery store or maybe you don't because you can order it online. But you still have to interact with people in real life in some ways. And how do you psychologically organize these two lives in your head and also emotionally, you know, like how do you process living two different realities? One where you get to be who you always wanted to be, which is not necessarily who you wanted to be. It's who society said you should be. And now it's mm -hmm. all like ego driven goals and, and ideas of perfection. And now that you can have these, I wonder like how you are then disconnected with living life as a real human, you know? I mean, it sounds so devastating to me because why would you opt to live in this world where everything is hard and not not your ideal version of things? But at the same time, like you can't completely go live in that game, in that world, because your your actual life is here and you have to care for yourself. I mean, like I could see it getting to a point where people are just living on like strange vitamins and protein drinks and like never using the toilet or anything. I, I think it's pretty pretty wild. And I think if you're unhappy here, you're going to spend more and more time in the place where you feel more happy. So how could you ever marry those two aspects of your life? I just, I just don't know. Yeah. Like I, th I find it concerning. And I, I have read stories about people becoming unsurprisingly – quote, addicted to the game. I don't, I don't think addiction is the right term here. I think it's just saying like, I would rather be there than here because of X, Y, Z. And so slowly their real life begins to erode. They lose relationships, their health declines, you know, they might stop paying their rent or cleaning their apartment, caring for their pets. I mean, it gets, it becomes more and more disconnected from the reality of their lives. And I think that's that's really scary. And I was reading, I mean, like I said, business is booming at Second Life right now because real life is pretty disappointing for a lot of people right now. For example, one woman in the game had purchased all these plane tickets to do this all this traveling last year. And when all of that fell apart, she got all her, all her money back and she decided to go on all of these different vacations within different worlds in Second Life instead. Uh, another woman joined a co-working space within Second Life. So imagine Second Life doesn't skip out on the really tedious things like co-working. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's all there. And so, you know, the, she could, while she was working at her real life job, also be hanging out in the co-working space within Second Life and see other people and just have that experience of working around other people. It's wow. so so bizarre. Uh, one player who runs a shop that supplies avatars in Second Life with pets and babies, because these things are very desirable in both real life and in Second Life, uh, she said that in the past year, her business had grown 30%. Her, 
her quote um, in this article I read is just so on point. She said, unfortunately, we live in a world where we're shown these beautiful, expensive things. That kind of lifestyle is very inexpensive in virtual life. Maybe it's just about getting a necklace you can't otherwise afford. It's just as gratifying to wear one on your avatar. But is it though? Like you're not actually I, wearing it. You're just looking at a picture of a robot thing, like wearing it. You know, it's like, okay, you can have a dog and you can have a relationship with your dog or you can look at a picture of an avatar of yourself <laughs> with a dog beside it. Like that's not the same. Like it can't be the same. I know. I know. I mean, I think it's a really tough hurdle to jump because you assume, for example, let's go back to the influencer on the fake private jet or taking a fake travel photo that's really a toilet seat, that person may have just created a photo of them on a fabulous trip, but they're not actually getting the experience of going on a fabulous trip. So yeah. I, I, I would argue that that's like the same thing as having a virtual dog. <laughs> like it's not – having a real dog is such a huge experience you know yeah i wouldn't imagine having a virtual dog like what would i do with it <laughs> <laughs> i like, know what would happen I know. to this dog i would just look at it on the screen and then that would somehow bring me joy you know it's uh it's really interesting but even talking about that uh there's discussion right now of bringing workshops that used to be like in real life people who would travel and live these experiences and have um Like I did a leadership program in Spain and we went there and we did all these different experiential things. And so now that we can't do them, uh, people are talking about using virtual reality to make them happen. And then it makes me mm. think like, whoa, because now if you had a dog in virtual reality, then you could get much closer to the real dog relationship experience. Because it's like a, now you're not just looking at a screen anymore. You feel like you're there or you feel like you are traveling to a different destination, even though you're not. So that definitely brings it to like a next level of experience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I feel about, about like the virtual reality traveling, you know, because I, I don't know. It's super I, weird. It's, it's really weird. It's it's missing the element that of like the lack of predictability of it, I guess. And like you can get lost very easily in a new place, but you're not going to get lost on a virtual reality trip. Like things are going to go off the rails. You're not going to get food poisoning. You're not going to forget the way back to your hotel. Like the, it just doesn't seem like it could ever be as gratifying as just – in real life, being somewhere you've never been before. Like it's a set of feelings that I can't even describe. But for me, travel is my like greatest joy in life. And I just know that a virtual reality experience of traveling is never going to feel right to me. I mean, even just like different places smell different. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like it just it, it it's just not it's just not there for me. But You know, I know that during the pandemic, a lot of museums have been opening up for these like virtual tours and people seem to really love them. I also would argue going to a museum is a much more artificial experience in the first place than like, you know, going to Mexico City and just walking around. Well, yeah, because if you're going to a different city, 
your experience will also be impacted by like the people who are there. So how mm -hmm. in a virtual reality will you have people? I guess it would have to be some sort of next level second life where other people are also in that virtual reality. And so then it starts to feel like it's real, which is very creepy to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you go to this, you go on this trip now and you're just surrounded by Paula's everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like this might sound like an extreme thing, but like whether we all want to admit it or not, whether we've ever played Second Life, there are all these other ways in which what is not real has become real for us and has sort of made the idea of buying fake things more more psychologically acceptable. Like I was reading last night about this is the technical name for this mental illness. This is what the like the medical industry is calling it, Snapchat dysmorphia, which is very simply people becoming accustomed to the way that they look using Snapchat or Instagram filters. And so like longing to be that version of themselves instead of who they really are. And of course, I don't know if you've ever played around with these filters. MP, but some of them are really disturbing. <laughs> like I, I, well, I like to play with that, around with them once in a while if I'm like bored, and then I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It's really creepy. I can't. I, I think the I used to when I was younger. I used to be so against counterfeit designer bags and stuff like that like that would that would oh, make gosh, me so angry yeah. i'd be like i'm gonna make a t-shirt that says like you know like fuck faux fashion like I, it made me so angry in so many ways and i was always fighting with people around that because they were buying it so much in like 2000 2005 um in that period of time and so now my new thing <laughs> my new war is like war against filters because i feel like they are so damaging for people's mental health and it's not just something that okay companies are feeding us this advertising of of perfect people is now we are telling our friends and other people we know like look at me i'm so perfect today but it's not real so we are contributing to these fake messages these fake ideas of beauty um and then we hurt the people that we love in a way we hurt each other and we hurt ourselves too because once you see yourself in this like smooth skin no like no flaws of any kind it becomes addictive like oh but how can i mm -hmm. have that in real life mm -hmm. it totally does and much like how people are creating these avatars in second life that are really you know shaped by these these like mainstream ideas of what's beautiful and what's not and yet still getting in the game and then being like no now i'm going to pay someone within the game to do quote, plastic surgery on my avatar to make them even more idealized, it kind of shows how it's this slippery slope where then it's almost like we can't ever be happy with what we have. Yeah. And so even if you woke up tomorrow morning and some magical thing had happened where you looked in the mirror and you were like, oh my God, I am everything I've always idealized about beauty all at once right now. 
by the end of the day, you would start picking yourself apart again. Yep. I think if we could solve one thing in the entire world, and if that one thing was for people to feel 100% good about who they are, it would solve so many of the world's biggest issues. Because you don't have to buy things if you don't have to prove to other people that you are worth it. You don't have to, um, you know, get a big house or get a car or get all these things to say that you're a better person if you already know you're a good person. Like all these ego-driven things we mm -hmm. pursue are only to make us feel good about ourselves. And if we already had that, then it would be like, oh, yeah, let's stop making things. Like, we're destroying the planet. Let Oh, let's start, you know, exploiting people to get cheap things. It's not worth it. And so I, I really feel like this is like the ultimate thing we have to solve to, and everything will, else will unfold. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so too. And I, I don't know how you undo it because I was thinking a few days ago about how when I was a kid, a lot of people were really protesting Barbie. <laughs> And, like, giving Barbies to girls. And, like, giving girls Barbie, you know, promotes this idea of a body that they'll never have and they'll be stuck with this forever. And to be fair, I played with Barbies when I was a kid. So perhaps that is part of my problem. But I was thinking about how actually my feeling of dismay about my body and my appearance and everything else about me came from many different places. It came from my own parents and relatives. It came from people at school. It came from watching television and looking at magazines and going to the movies and like, how, how do you fix all of that? Yeah. Well, because broken people are breaking the next generation of people. For sure. I mean, it's a conditioning that we've been carrying through generations. And so we are continuing it without even noticing it. Like, um, just an article that I wrote for Close Horse blog about the Pantone colors and how these are also perpetrating trend and making people consume. It's the same. It's the same thing as you know. One one person will give you a comment of like, "Oh, you look like you you gain weight," or you know, like for example, when I was I think thirteen, there was a boy that said to me, hey, "Why are your arms big? Are they like are they strong? Or I don't understand why they're big." And <sighs> I swear, I had no idea in my life that my arms are bigger, bigger than they should be. And then from that point on, it's like, I still remember. And I still, to this day, it, throughout my life, always thought, oh, yeah, I have big arms. Like, oh, I cannot wear a puffy sleeve because I already have big arms or oh. I cannot do that. And it's like, it's not that it's consciously there, but it's unconsciously something that I I took in and was like, oh, thank you for the note. I will put that in my <laughs> in my notebook and I will remember forever <laughs> to try to be better about that. You know, instead of like, hey, if you're not happy with my arms, you can always walk away. You know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's really interesting. I was thinking when you were telling that story, I was thinking about how in I gosh, I can remember this so clearly sitting in the cafeteria at school in ninth grade and this boy who one of our friends had a crush on coming over to our table and saying that we all had mustaches. And it was like I was like, wait, I have a mustache? How did I not know? And then we were like examining one another. And my friend was like, well, you do. I mean, it's just blonde, you know? Well, yeah, guess what? We all have hair growing on our upper lip. But this kid put like it, in one second, took something I'd never thought about ever and made it a lifelong obsession 
and hang up. Like, oh, am I getting a mustache yet? Like, how dark is it? Like, suddenly I'm buying products to to groom my mustache. You know what I mean? Like, all it took was one minute in the school cafeteria for a lifelong obsession and insecurity to develop. And he probably learned that from somebody else. Like, someone else pointed that out to him, and then he pointed that out to other people. Like it didn't, it, he didn't just like notice that one day someone had to tell him that was not okay. Like that was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, then that's just like one of, you know, the infinite number of times these kinds of things happen every single day. And, you know, they all have a direct path to buying something. Yeah. Because there's always a solution for us to fix ourselves. It's like, oh yeah, you don't feel good about that. Hey, guess what? We have a product for you. We have a service for you where everyone's ready to like fix you up (laughs) for anything you might need. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, the more, the bigger, the diet industry, right? Like that's massive. That's like, just when you think maybe it'll go away, it somehow blows up even more. Right. Uh, Or, you know, grooming in itself. I feel like even in the past few years, we've had all these new things that we should be fretting about when it comes to grooming and skincare. Uh, I was, I keep getting this ad on Instagram that is making me really angry and it's about deodorant that you just put behind your knees and like anywhere your body bends so that you don't smell. Oh my Uh, God. Why behind your knees? Are your knees smelling? I, (laughs) my knees don't smell. I don't think. I, mean, I don't think so either, but I read a – like someone commented on there. Once again, this could be a fake person, right? Because we like don't even know who's real. And this person was like, oh my god, you changed my life. I always had smelly inner elbows and now I don't. Like, wait, what? <laughs> like <laughs> – I can't. Like, wow. what? <laughs> you know? And so like I feel like there's always someone stepping forward with a new product that's going to, you know – Oh, you didn't know that was wrong with you? Well, guess what it is, you know? Wow. <laughs> I mean, there, there are the classics that keep going, you know, the diet industry and straightening your teeth and whitening them and, of course, anti-aging and anti-acne. But there's always someone ready to swoop in and say, like, hey, have you ever thought about taking these vitamins so you have thicker hair and you'll be way more popular and everything will be great? Or have you thought about – how you, your inner elbow is smelly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing too, again, it's like instead, so then even us now on Instagram, instead of going like, hey, I have some, I'm going to do a video on Instagram, but I have some acne today and it's fine because some days I will have acne and it's normal. Then we'll use a filter yeah. to hide it because we're self-conscious and we don't want to hear the criticism and we don't want people to think that, you know, we don't look good. But what we're actually doing is making other people feel like they don't look good. You know, we're all trying to protect ourselves from other people's Mm. comments. But what we're actually doing is creating new negative thought in those people. Like everyone's thinking about themselves. So when someone's criticizing you, they're just thinking about them. They're not thinking about you in a way. There, it's just their own perception of you in comparison to them, you know? Am I better than this person or am I less than this person? If I'm less than, I'm going to hate on this person. If I'm better than, then I'm good. I don't care what this person's doing anyway. Or I might make fun of, of this person. So it's kind of like, that's why I think if we don't use the filters and we, if we are being honest, then that's how we can be a part of starting to solve that problem, you know? 
Totally, totally. There are so many expectations that society has put out there, all these like rules like, oh, well, if you're going to have your photo taken, you better be wearing makeup. Oh, but if you can't, don't worry, you can just use this filter or like you always need to be looking your best. And, you know, what about your hair? And like there are all these ways that like filters and other technological solutions have swooped in, you know, going back to like the Zoom background because you're afraid your apartment's not nice enough, you know. Technology is like, hey, let me lend you a hand to fix all your insecurities. But, you know, the filters on Instagram might be free right now, but they won't always be, you know, for one. So someone's going to turn that into an industry. But I would also argue that it already is because you see someone's creamy, fake, filtered skin on Instagram and you think, should I buy some masks? Like, mm-hmm. do I need do I need different moisturizer? And then you're like on Sephora buying more stuff. Like it it works. Yeah. If I found out next week that like Sephora was directly responsible for creating all the filters on Instagram, I'd be like, yeah, it adds up to me because, <laughs> you know, I can look at something on Instagram and say that person is definitely filtering their face. It's very obvious, right? Because it's like so smooth and it has like a, a peculiar like glow to it, right? Like that's not natural. Yep. But my brain is still like, I wonder if I should like get a chemical peel. Yeah, it's because like you see it, but you don't, you have to really stop yourself and look at it and be like, yeah, is this real or not? And also as more and more people use them, you see less and less of natural faces. So then it Mm -hmm. becomes like, oh yeah, everyone looks like that. That's quite normal, you know? And even though on stories, they have the little name at the top, like it's so small and so you can see but it's so easy to stop looking at it but one good thing that they did though that i like is that if you try to take a story on instagram and i'll tell you why i know that but if you try to take a story on instagram with a filter and you save it to your phone and you want to repost it that name will still show up you know if people were trying to be like i'll use this filter but i don't want people to know that i'm using it and i only know that because i wanted to I uh, like once in a while I'll post some pictures and be like these filters are super damaging and I wanted to use one that a friend of mine is using a lot and I didn't want to like upset her so I'm like oh can I hide the name but turns out you can't which I think is like a good step in a way and I don't know why it's there maybe it's just a copyright of the person who created the filter although I'm sure there's no copyright on it so I don't know but that's at least one step is there's a small disclaimer of Hey, you're looking at a fake image. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I follow a few accounts that really focus on calling out influencers on shady behavior, uh, which I should unfollow because it mostly just makes me angry most of the time, which I don't need more <laughs> unhappy feelings. But uh, I, it also like opens my eyes to things that I was just totally unaware of. So on that side, maybe it is good. And a lot of influencers are doing this thing where they will do what you said, where they save the photo. And then they will like crop out that. Ah, zoom it mm-hmm, in and then it mm-hmm. disappears. Yep. Or wow. they will post a caption, not a caption, but like some words or a sticker or something over it so you can't see it. And mm. there are all these like sleuths out there, these social media sleuths who are like, they're like, no, that's actually this filter. I can tell here. Here are all the signs. <laughs> I guess the moral of the story is you can't really believe most of what you see on social media. And it's because, you know, it's not like everybody who's posting themselves with a filter on social media is a bad person. That's just not true. But social media rewards you for the most, quote, perfect content, 
for only showing the good side of life, for creating these fake aspirational lives. That's that's where the rewards come in. That's where more people see your photo, more people like it. That feels good, right? If you're trying to build a business on Instagram, let me tell you, it is a constant grind of like, how can I get more people to like this photo? You know, because, yep. you know, and MP and I were talking about this yesterday, like, if you're posting anything that's remotely like not fun and anti-capitalist, uh, your your post is going to be pushed to the bottom by the algorithm. Yeah, totally. And the annoying thing too is like, you post a picture of yourself and then suddenly all those people that were never around before, everyone starts to like your picture. And it's like, I don't want to post pictures of myself almost ever, yeah, me but neither. I do it sometimes just because I need the help. Uh, and it's, it's just so interesting to me. It's like, I wonder if people like those pictures because it's like, oh, it's her. It's like, if I see a picture of you, I'm sure I'll be like, ah, oh, it's Amanda. Cool. And I, I like the picture. Or is it just that, or is it both? Is it just that it's being shown uh, more because Instagram is like, okay, this person's not trying to sell something and using this platform to sell things for free, or they're not trying to convince anyone of any ideas. And it's just kind of, it's just a picture. It's it's like a low risk thing to show a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder what it is about it. I don't know. You know, we just published a post today at Close Horse dot world by Haley about how YouTube really rewards those haul videos, which, you wow. know, like obviously like if you're anti-consumerist, the last thing you want to see is a haul video, a video of a bunch of stuff someone just bought, right? But she was also making all these like sewing videos of all of her sewing projects and YouTube wasn't showing them to anyone. Whereas the haul videos YouTube would be serving to everyone constantly. And if you're taking an ad revenue, that's what you need. If you want to make a living off of your work on YouTube, you have to post things that YouTube is going to see as desirable and constantly push to other viewers. And so that's what YouTube wants to show everyone, videos of people buying too much stuff. Wow. And I think that is so fascinating because it ties back to Instagram only wanting to show you things that like make you feel like buying something i feel like you know <laughs> yeah yeah definitely like a lot of the anything that's about activism or you know calling out things or information about you know anti-capitalist stuff or anti-racism or anything about the environment it's always like no it's it's not going to be shown at all to people like sometimes my posts are not even seen by five percent of my followers it's it's so, so. wild it it, like when you see people posting about shadow banning on Instagram, it is real mm -hmm. that there is a certain type of content that Instagram would love to show to everyone and otherwise, <laughs> no, you know, you're just going to have to keep hoping that people find you because they're not going to just find you by accident, like with, you know, by accident meeting with Instagram's help. Like it's just, it's really important that if you follow someone on Instagram, whose platform you really appreciate that you tag your friends and get your friends to follow them because they're never going to just happen upon them. Yeah. Yeah. It's never going to be in the explore page. No, no. <laughs> every, I will tell you every time I just am like, I'm going to look at my explore page. It is so not in line with like the posts that I tend to like be most engaged with. And everyone I click on already has like 
57,000 likes. And I'm like, why are you, why are you showing me this? Like, it's clearly already been very successful. You know, like Instagram is picking a lane for sure. For sure. All my explore pages right now is like those ceramic rings, like those big uncomfortable rings and <laughs> candles. Oh my, it's so and, many and rugs, candles. Like fluffy rugs. It's kind of like, okay, if I see another candle, if I see another bit ring like I cannot like how do I get those off <laughs> how did I end up here <laughs> Instagram decided that I really want candles and elaborate vases oh. <laughs> but uh, I also get served those rings it's very very weird <laughs> I don't understand those rings like they look cool but how do you even wear them I know like, if you can, I know. Like, close your fingers yeah kind of I, don't, I don't know I mean you know I, I that's a whole other episode where yeah. we <laughs> consume so many things that prevent us from living life <laughs> That's so true. You know what I mean? I think about that a lot. Like I think about, for example, not to go off on a whole tangent, but let's talk about women's shoes for a moment, okay? How a majority of the shoes that are served to us that we ought to be buying, we ought to be collecting, we couldn't actually walk or run in. Like, yeah. But it's a whole industry. Yeah, I can't believe people still wear like high heels. I used to wear them when I was younger. I don't even know why I did that. It like it hurts your feet so much. Like, what's the point? I literally would remember being out like at a bar or the club with my friends at a party, whatever, and I would be drinking alcohol solely because my feet hurt and I needed to like take the <laughs> edge off. <laughs> yeah. How are you dancing oh, in those high heels gosh. all night? I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> I When I was working at Nasty Gal in LA, you know, like those shoes were at like critical mass where I would be wearing like four inch platform heels to work. And unlike everybody else in LA, I didn't have a car. I took the subway to work. So I would walk almost a mile to the subway station and then take that and then walk for like 10 minutes or so when I got off the subway to my office. And I was still wearing those shoes for all of it. And I started to get plantar fasciitis, and which is like oh, wow. an inflammation of everything on the bottom of your feet. And the doctor was like, well, what kind of shoes do you normally wear? And I was like, the ones I'm wearing right now. And he was like, well, wait, but like, but to walk and stuff, what do you wear? I was like, these, why would I own shoes that I can't walk in? And he was like, I think you just answered your own question right there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. So yeah, that's a whole other episode. Why do we buy things that we can't actually like use? I, I don't know. But um, or that like prevents us from having a happy, healthy life. And like who designs these things <laughs> that are it's like if we can design anything in the world, why are we designing shoes that hurt us? Right. Right. You know? <laughs> and then we buy it on purpose because like it looks good or it has a certain status. But again, it's like, cool, but these shoes hurt you. <laughs> so like it's just a weird thing. Like we're we're kind of disconnected to that idea, you know, of like I am hurting myself mm -hmm. so other people can feel good about about how I look. Yeah, but way. what's also great as a side effect of you wearing those terrible shoes is then you can also go spend money on like shoe inserts and foot treatments and all of these other things. So it's like a bonus to sell you these bad shoes because you're going to spend even more money than just the cost of those shoes. And I think, I mean, like, for example, why do we make so many clothes that you can't wear a bra with or, or you have to wear special underwear with? Why? Because mm -hmm. it incentivizes buying even more. Or why do we sell people pants that they can't even sit down in? I had a coworker who 
had a lot of body image issues, as we all do, especially working in the fashion industry. And she would wear clothes that she could only stand in. So she had a standing desk. She couldn't sit down. I mean, that's wild. You know? Yeah. I was just thinking yesterday how I haven't worn my... Because I came across this thing on Instagram of like millennials and Gen uh, Z arguing about, you know, skinny jeans and and are they in or are they out or whatever. And I just thought, wow, I haven't worn mine in like three months. And I feel so good about that <laughs> because these pants were so uncomfortable. Yeah. And if you sit for too long, like the lines of your pants are kind of inside your skin oh, yeah. now like there you have the print of them and when you when you stand up it hurts like it's burning when it gets back to normal it's like why why, why though? <laughs> I agreed agreed well someone will sell you a lotion for that for sure <laughs> MP will be back on Sunday for the second half of our conversation, and we'll be talking about, among many other things, how to reach out to people with different opinions on social media, like how to hold productive conversations with them, and whether or not, (laughs) this is an abrupt transition, whether or not life is a simulation. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. I also just want to mention now, before I forget, that I recently received a copy of MP's magazine, Ungarbage, and it is just the most beautiful magazine I've seen in a long time. So please go to ungarbagemag.com for more info. Next week, my G-Chat convo, that's right, we chatted, we got old school. My G-Chat convo with MP about the magazine will be posted on closehorse.world. I want to say it's next Monday. So you'll get to learn more about the inspiration and motivation behind the magazine. It's really, really cool. Seriously, when I opened the package the magazine came in, Dustin was like, whoa, now that's a nice magazine. And speaking of Dustin, as I was editing my conversation with MP, he stopped to listen to the section about NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens. They're like all I see articles about on the internet for the past few weeks. I don't know what's going on. It's like the GameStop thing went away and now the same people are writing about these non-fungible tokens. And you're probably like, what the hell? I've never heard of this before. What does this mean? You know, it was hard for me to kind of understand the concept completely. I mean, I understand what these things are, but to understand why they were called non-fungible tokens, it required a lot of reading on my part. I'm going to try my best to explain it to you right now. Hopefully this works. So fungibility is the ability of a good or asset to be readily interchanged for another of like kind. So goods and assets that are not interchangeable, meaning they are non-fungible, would be like cars and houses. Like you couldn't lease a car from a dealership and then at the end of the lease return a different car, right? Like Every car doesn't have the same value. You can't break a car down into smaller cars and have it have the same value. That would just be called breaking a car into pieces, right? Similar thing with a home. Money, however, is a prime example of something fungible because a $1 bill that's worth $1, right? It's easily transferable into four quarters or 10 dimes, 100 pennies. All of those different versions of $1 are still worth one dollar. 
money can be transferred into other currencies and it doesn't really change its value either. So money is fungible. A lot of possessions are non-fungible. Speaking of the fungibility of money, I recently read about a very disgruntled and definitely like an asshole employer who paid his former employee the $900 he owed him in back pay solely in pennies, like a literal wheelbarrow of pennies dumped in the former employee's driveway. And I think they were also covered with oil, so they were just like a mess to handle. It's not a cool move. I'm not saying you should do that. But the value of those pennies were the same as giving him $901 bills or $900 bills or even writing him a check, right? When you buy NFT art, also known as crypto art, you buy a verified token providing digital evidence that the art belongs to you. The idea is to offer some semblance of authenticity that is naturally bestowed on physical art, like physical painting has a signature on it that can be verified and validated, right? This is supposed to replace that. So NFT art isn't interchangeable. Like you couldn't travel across the internet to visit your latest piece of purchased art and find that had been substituted with different art. That wouldn't be okay. And ostensibly, these tokens of authenticity would also prevent people from just copying and dispensing art. Like you create some sort of digital art and suddenly people are reposting it on Tumblr. You know, it's supposed to prevent that. This virtual art can sell for some serious money. Like I, I, I can't, I went down a weird rabbit hole with this and it's all so wild to me. In February of this year, so just last month, an animated image of Nan Cat, you know, the very popular meme of a rainbow shooting cat made of a Pop-Tart, which took the internet by storm, like, I don't know, I thought a long time ago. Anyway, this animated image sold for $660,000, but you can only see it on a device. You can't like hang it on the wall, you know, or put it on the coffee table. So I hope I explained this pretty well. It's really complicated and weird. Anyway, so Dustin was listening to me talk about NFTs and he said, hey, aren't NFTs, including cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, really bad for the planet? And I was like, what? How could that be? They aren't real. I know the word real is not the right adjective to use here, but you know, they're not like tangible like you can't hold them in your hands they're not made of stuff that had to be like grown or manufactured they didn't have to be like assembled by someone and shipped in a boat or an airplane they aren't in a poly bag in a box like i just couldn't understand how these sort of like unreal things could be bad for the planet and he said no the energy required for all of the data sharing and storage is through the roof which brought me to another part of so-called virtual stuff that I hadn't even thought of. Even though it's not real, whatever, I can't, please, somebody send me a better adjective. Should we say tangible? Because I feel like people would also say that NFTs are tangible. I don't know. Anyway, they're not physical. Let's say that. They're not physical. This virtual stuff is not physical, but it still has an impact on the environment. Now I'm going to say that the carbon footprint and energy consumption of all of these NFTs is a big source of controversy amongst the techie end of the internet. Many people are disputing it, and it seems like it can be difficult to get to precise data around it, 
But I do want to tell you this. For the average NFT artist, if they do about eight months of hosting and selling their art, it's equivalent to the gas used to drive a car 18,000 miles. It's also equivalent to a European resident's electricity consumption for three years. It's the same as flying for 57 hours, boiling a kettle 120,000 times, using a laptop for 83 years, using a desktop computer for 23 years. There are ways that this can be improved, obviously by increasing the efficiency of the hardware hosting all this stuff in data centers. I mean, these are some pretty wild numbers, right? And once again, when we think the of the impact on the planet of the things we buy, we're, we're going back to like the water to grow the cotton and the electricity to make the fabric and the sewing and the dyeing and then the like packing it up and shipping it across the world and then putting it in an Amazon box and sending it to you. Like we're thinking of those things, which are obviously like very clearly bad for the planet. But those were some pretty shocking numbers that I just gave you, right? Once again, the same as the average European resident's electricity consumption for three years. And we're talking just the hosting and selling of this art. Of course, there are ways that this can be improved by increasing the efficiency of the hardware, hosting all the stuff in data centers, of switching to renewable energy sources, all that kind of stuff. But no matter what, even unreal virtual stuff that you can't actually touch or wear, it still has an impact on the planet. You know how I always say, there's no fabric that lets you buy as much clothing as you want, wear it a few times, and throw it out? Well, I guess we have to update that to say there's no fabric, real or virtual, something like that. I guess there's no type of consumption that isn't damaging when it's happening to excess. Anyway, we talked about a lot of stuff in this episode, our experiences with the unreal reality that most of us experience via social media. We talked about filters distorting our ideas of beauty and so much more, just so many ideas out there today. I would love to hear what you have to say about it. So reach out because you know what? We're on this journey to reducing our consumption together. So let's help one another make that happen. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. As always, I'm going to ask you, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends. Try to explain non-fungible tokens to them and let me know how it goes. <laughs> Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I'm doing these super fun Instagram live Q&As at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We talk about some blog stuff. I answer your questions about this week's episodes or really anything else. Be there or be square. It's been really fun. Oh, also this Friday, I promised my friend Alana that I would wear my most regretful purchase of recent years, which is my strawberry dress. So I'll be really done up for this one. <laughs> Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And if you haven't yet, please go check out The Department, my other podcast, which I co-host with my friend Kim. This week is like the ultimate fangirl moment for me because we interviewed Wendy Mullen of Built by Wendy. This is part one of our conversation this week. Part two will be coming next week. And 
She's so cool. <laughs> so please go check it out. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye. 